listening to the Rent Roll Radio Show with Sterling Chapman. Hey, Rent Roll Radio listeners, welcome back to the show. As always, I'm your host, Sterling Chapman. Today, we're joined by Neil Walgren. He is the COO of MAG Capital Partners. Neil, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Sterling. Appreciate it. Awesome. Well, Neil, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of how you got into the real estate world? Yeah, absolutely. So right now I'm running Capital Markets as the COO for MAG Capital Partners. Just in short, we're an investment firm. We do largely syndication, uh, we pool capital from retail and high net worth investors. And our specialty, our niche, if you will, is in the industrial space. And we do single tenant net lease. So long triple net 20-year leases with you know, largely what are called sub-credit tenants a lot of manufacturing firms. And we actually, as part of our niche, we buy most of our real estate through sale lease back where we're buying the real estate and then simultaneously leasing it back to the operators. Wow. There's a a ton of questions around that (laughs) because that's a very niche environment that you're operating in right there. We have a lot of syndicators on the show, but typically they're aimed around like a, a multifamily traditional apartment syndication. So it sounds like Sounds like maybe you didn't come about this through the same old story that we hear. (laughs) So I'm curious as to kind of how you got involved in that niche, how you got involved more broadly in real estate, how you landed in that niche. And could you, you know, elaborate a little bit more on, on the process and why did you say that you're buying the asset and then leasing it back to the same person you bought it from? Mm -hmm. So yeah, a little bit about me, Um, you know, my background, I was actually a, Air Force pilot for about 10 years, ended up switching over to the Navy for a few years after that, uh, got my MBA and then got into the private sector and ultimately had the opportunity moving back to the San Francisco Bay Area to get plugged in with kind of a family friend who originally had a business model where we would raise capital from a network of investors and then we would partner with commercial developers or brokers who really had, had access to good commercial real estate projects could put together a good project. Yeah, but lacked access to capital. So we would be essentially the capital investor arm for that. And what was kind of neat about that was I I had a chance to to really get plugged in with experts who were very good at kind of a niche model, you know, across the the board. And we had, you know, maybe about six or eight different folks we would do repeat deals with. And, you know, we had our our multifamily guys who strictly did apartments in Northeast Atlanta. We had a you know, multi-tenant retail group and, you know, just a, a number of them. And one of those groups was Mad Capital. And we we raised money at the time on a partnership level for about three of the projects. And I, you know, especially having seen a lot of the other asset types, I really liked the single tenant net lease industrial model. You know, you have, I mean, just most of the work is done up front where, you know, you're negotiating the lease, you're negotiating the purchase price for the asset. And then once If you do your homework right and you get it all set up in a way that makes sense, I mean, they are the most sleep easy investments, in my opinion, out there. You know, they're cash flow focused, they're 100% occupied. And most most of these tenants are are strong, I mean, really like business to business oriented manufacturing firms in the Midwest. You know, most of them have been around 30, 40, 50 years. They're making core B2B type products, you know, everything from like industrial mixers, dryers, you know high density foam end caps for shipping appliances and electronics. Um, you know, some are co-packers who make frozen food goods, you know, and basically will sell to retail focused brands who put their own label on it. 
and uh, you know, really that kind of um, uh, you know, essentially products one step away from the consumer. So why are they selling you the property in the first place if they just want to lease it back from you? What's their what's the benefit on their end? Great question. It typically coincides with a recent sale of the company to a private equity group. And so private equity groups will buy these businesses because they believe they have the skills and the capital to inject into the business to grow the business at a substantial clip. And ultimately, oftentimes those businesses with that sale to the PE groups, it comes with the own real estate. And so PE groups, really, they can't get the returns they're looking for by owning real estate. And they prefer to basically extract the capital that's tied up in the building and reinvest that into the actual operating company. So that's, that's the drive behind why. So could they not accomplish something similar by just doing some type of loan against the property? Yeah, no, great question. You know, there's several advantages. So typically a loan is going to be limited to roughly about 70% loan to value. On a sale leaseback, you can extract 100% of the value. And then on, on the flip side, there's tax advantages too, where you're able to write off 100% of rent as an expense on the company's bottom line. Whereas from a mortgage, there's limits to how much of that mortgage interest you're able to write off. And it's usually much lower than the amount of rent you would be able to. So those two factors there are the, are the main reasons why companies will do that. You know, And they're just able to extract money more efficiently from that compared to a, a traditional refi or a mortgage. Is there any additional like liability type benefit from them not owning the property? If they have a lawsuit or accidents on, on the premises, is there any benefit for them not owning it? If it was a gross lease, yes. However, most of these transactions are all structured with absolute triple net leases. So they basically maintain that full level of responsibility, everything from insurance, taxes, maintenance, utilities, all the things that they are responsible for as an owner, you know, the way these leases are structured, they have full control still, but they maintain full responsibility and liability for all the expenses with the property. Awesome. So what kind of risk do you run with, I guess, with single tenant deals? Is there a higher risk versus kind of diversifying it over multiple tenants? Yeah. And especially folks who come in from the multifamily background, I use that as a common comparison because it is, it's, it's where a lot of people get their feet wet in commercial investment. And the idea of you're kind of taught, Hey, like spread that risk across a lot of renters and suddenly you can lose a few and still be fine. And the idea of a single tenant can be a little scary. The way we look at it actually is, is a little different in that it is a concentrated risk, but it's a risk that if you do your homework and are able to you know, really understand it, suddenly you have really a, not a lot of operational risk in a project's success. It all boils down. So, I mean, to put it another way, we are essentially buying a very predictable set of cash flows that come from that rent. There's no expenses to disrupt those cash flows. So we know with a high degree of certainty down to the cent, the amount of money that is coming in even a few years from now, right? And then those cash flows are governed by the brand new lease that we put in place and the language in that lease. And then the risk is essentially the tenant credit. Ultimately, if that tenant defaults on the lease, probably through a, a chapter 11 bankruptcy event, that's really the only way that those cash flows are disrupted. So it really comes down to how do you analyze that credit risk, which is ultimately where the risk in your deal lies. We do um, what's called sub-investment grade. 
And so you have kind of two categories of tenants in the space. On one side, you have an investment grade, and that's going to be you know, really more name brand companies, right? You know, your Amazons or your Walgreens or, you know, and you'll see these, these deals on, on LoopNet on the market. They're credit tenants. They have publicly traded, you know, they have outside credit agencies giving them credit ratings. You know, your Moody's S&P will give them a, you know, AAA minus or a BBB plus, whatever it might be. And that's, that's an objective level of their credit worthiness. And it's nice, you know, you know very well where those guys stand. You can feel good about it. And ultimately, the risk is pretty low, but consequently, the cash flow is going to be low as well. You know, those might only cash flow, say, 3 to 4% a year to investors. What we play in are, are what's called sub-investment grade. So usually, they're, they're still strong companies, typically 60 to $80 million a year. They're not big enough to have an outside credit agency. Mm-hmm. So we actually do that work ourselves. So we have a, a credit advisory team in-house because it is a, a huge part of our business model. And these guys, they go and they'll produce a six to 10 page credit memo for every deal we look at. And they're looking at, you know, kind of the the basics, financial summaries, balance sheets. Uh, They look at the amount of debt these guys have, their profitability, EBITDA, EBITDA margins. But then they take it a step further and they go, hey, with a sale lease back, these guys are getting a big injection of cash from the sale of the real estate, right? How are they going to use it? Are they paying off the owners who's going to go, you know, take it to Bermuda? Or are they, you know, investing this cash back into the business? Are they paying down corporate debt? Are they reinvesting in capital improvements, new manufacturing lines, new headcount, whatever it might be? You know, and that's that's really a huge piece of the puzzle to find out, hey, how are these proceeds going to be used? And is the company going to be better off on the tail end? And then really that's what we're most concerned with is what that company looks like after. Do you have any, I mean, could they just tell you they're spending the money on something and then after you close the deal, go spend it on something else? Do you have any way to hold them accountable to their presented business plan? Not necessarily in terms of that side. I mean, usually, you know, they're, they're pretty frank about it. You know, these are private equity groups. They have a, a very repeatable business model. There's not a lot of teeth you can do to force them to use it in a certain way, but a lot of it's just good business practice. And they'll be upfront about it. You know, sometimes there's usually some portion of the proceeds used to pay off some owner equity, and they'll be very upfront about that piece too. Got it. So how are you finding these types of deals? It's really interesting. It's it's a little different than your standard commercial broker network, you know, going on LoopNet or uh, commercial brokerage listings in that I would say it's a kind of a boutique skill of the brokers and private equity groups who play in this space because you're not just negotiating price of real estate. You're also at the same time negotiating terms of the lease. So just to use an example, you might have a, a seller who says, hey, I want to maximize proceeds and I'm willing to pay a higher price per square foot on my rent on the tail end. Or mm-hmm. another guy might say, hey, I'm looking for you know, a low rent for 20 years and consequently, I'm willing to sell this property on the low end of the market. You know, and those are, I mean, just kind of a, an example there that there is a bit of an art form in terms of balancing those two to find a win-win. And at the end of the day, we're looking for yield, right? Yield basically boils down to what kind of cash flow are we getting for our investors and what is the risk that's attached to it? And that, you know, the risk piece we talked about, and then the cash flow comes in the negotiation. So what does your typical investor look like? Are you mom and pop in it or are these more institutional players? For our group, you know, we've really found success in, in working with both retail investors, professionals, doctors, lawyers, 
and also some some high net worth individuals. We do we syndicate, so we'll pull together sometimes twenty to twenty to forty individuals for each of the projects that we take down. What do the typical returns look like on one of these projects? They're actually um, based on our criteria. We have a, a fairly narrow guideline, so you know we're usually buying properties, you know, between about a you know roughly seven to eight and a half cap range. Typically in the Midwest, we're finding a nice risk reward ratio out there. And, you know, most of these deals, we, we target 8% or higher of cash flow from day one. And then we're usually able to actually increase the cash that goes to investors based on pre-negotiated rent bumps in that new lease. So most leases, and really it's, it's designed as a way to hedge against inflation. So, you know, if you have a 20-year lease, if it's a stagnant lease rate, you're going to be losing real purchasing power of those dollars as everything else inflates right. around it. So what we do is we we do, you know, most of our, our leases have roughly 2% increases per year. And that, that'll flow on to our investors, you know, annually increasing. So what's your typical hold time for these, these projects? Yeah, that's a good question too. You know, some groups will come in and say, hey, we're going to hold this for like 15 years. It's just going to be cash cow all the way down. You know, we found a nice, a nice little niche of roughly about five years. And it's not an arbitrary number. The reason we do that is we are the the front end of a new long-term lease because we're the creator of it. And what's nice about that is a releasing event has inherent risk around it. You know, is your tenant going to release? If they do, are they going to ask for, you know, extra TIs, concessions, whatever it might be, especially if the market's in their favor at the time. We have decided, hey, we just want to own the early lease portion for our investment horizon. We usually will hold about five years. There's still roughly 15 years left on the lease. And that's that's an attractive sale to the next buyer. And we're selling to either pension funds, institutional buyers, REITs, 1031 buyers, or sometimes even investment groups similar to ourselves. Awesome. Do you see a lot of crossover between like the multifamily syndicators over to your space? Is that is it kind of like a, a logical progression you find? You know, it's interesting. I, I don't think the industrial single tenant space belongs as 100% in anyone's portfolio. However, I mean, especially, you know, as you, as you get older, I think that consistency outweighs the potential of a, of a large value add multifamily, for instance, just to, you know, use an example or a development sure. in that I can look an investor in the eye and tell them with a high degree of certainty that, hey, even like four years from now, this is the exact amount of monthly distributions that you're going to see. And, you know, it's not affected by things like COVID. It's not affected by market factors, at least not in the same way as you're going to see in, in more aggressive value-add projects. And that, that consistency is, is really refreshing to a lot of folks. You know, just to use an example, in 2020 with COVID, we had about 22 projects under ownership. And I mean, literally the entire time the portfolio just performed. I mean, there was no, there was no hiccups, tenants paid rent, we paid our distributions. <laughs> you know, these are strong companies that have been around almost a half century on average. And you know, they have good cash reserves. They know how to weather a storm through a recession or, or an event like COVID. And, and they did. And they all came out, you know, really strong on the back end as well. So we were fortunate on that side. Did y'all not have any interruptions or did y'all not feel it financially? So what I mean is, did you maybe have a, a warehouse get shut down because there was an outbreak, but the company that was rented from you had the cash reserves to float it until they got back to work? 
Yeah. Every single property except for one was deemed essential and able to keep operating. So we were, I mean, just fantastically lucky. And, and I realized, you know, COVID, all, all the provisions, who's essential, who's not, like, I mean, who could have seen that coming, right? Like that, a lot of that is luck, right? But, you know, we were fortunate to be in a space that was deemed largely essential, core manufacturing. And the one, one exception, we actually had a health club out in the Midwest and they were forced closed in March. And we actually worked out a pretty good deal with them where we gave them a, a four-month forbearance and said, hey, basically, you're going to accrue interest, put a pause on the on your, your lease payments. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, we were able to negotiate the same deal with our lender who said, all right, you'll accrue interest, put a pause on the mortgage payments. And then after four months, everyone just resumed like clockwork. You amortized the missed payments into both sides. And you know it worked out, I think, the tenant was stronger now, far stronger than they were, you know, back in March. They actually have acquired a few competing health clubs in the area and you know, are, are quite a bit larger. And then the bank was happy and, uh, you know, it ended up being a win-win for everyone. Now. Awesome. So what other differences do you see in your space kind of versus some, some other niche areas that we typically learn about? Yeah. I mean, do you mean from like an, an investor's perspective or broker, sponsor? From from all directions. Sure, sure. Um, you know, I think it's interesting to look at real estate through the eyes of a different set of, of criteria. And what I mean by that, so, you know, for example, multifamily, right? And I'm going to use that. Uh, I love multifamily. I have some, some multifamily investments of my own, but it's the asset class that people know most just because they're most exposed to it. And it's usually, again, that that starting point. So, you know, in a multifamily deal, you're looking at your metro and your demographics and your submarket are so crucially important for the success, especially if you think you can turn this thing around, right? If you're going to put a, you know, million dollars of capex and do renovations and you think you can improve the rents and the occupancy, like really having a deep dive into that submarket is crucial, right? Location, location, location. 100%, right? But on the manufacturing side, it's a little different where, I mean, don't get me wrong, like location still is important, but I can deviate from, you know, a major metro comfortably as long as I have increasingly strong tenant credit. So for example, we are pursuing a deal right now where it's about 20 or 25 miles outside of Detroit. And it's fascinating because it's kind of tertiary, not going to lie, but the, the tenant credit is phenomenal. And this, this company, actually their parent company is, is signing a full guarantee on the lease. And the parent company does almost a half million dollars a year in revenue, double digit EBITDA margins. I mean, just a, a powerhouse tenant. And you know, having that substantiation allows us to comfortably venture out a little bit further out of a major metro because of the decreasing likelihood of having a default on that lease. So, you know, especially with a relatively small investment horizon of about four or five years, you can sleep pretty easily there and go, hey, I I feel good about this, you know, and I'm willing to take a sub-secondary metro there. So you're not necessarily hunting buildings as much as you're hunting businesses that have buildings to sell you. 100%. You're hunting, yeah. hunting the business, not the geographical four walls. Yep. And the valuation, especially with these long-term leases, the valuation of that building 
increasingly correlates to the strength of the credit much more than any other asset class does. So we still have, you know, fundamentals. We're still looking at, hey, does the price per square foot of this real estate make sense in the metro or make sense with similar, you know, long-term net leases? But at the end of the day, we get a much better comp of a similar lease, even two states away than I would in the metro comparing my 20-year net lease with, you know, say a three-year lease of a, of a competing product there. So the strength of the lease and the strength of the tenant are much, much better indicators of the real, real risk and reward of the project. Awesome. What differences from an investor perspective might, might one notice? Yeah. I mean, really it's, I would say your upside is capped and your downside is capped. So, you know, you're, you're not going to have 30% returns on a standard net lease play. But on the flip side, you know, your consistency, in my opinion, is substantially higher. So, so you said something earlier that kind of, I want to say, did you, did you say older, something in reference to kind of older folks? And that's just like 101 traditional financial planning, right? In the early years, we did yeah. these, these, these high cap stocks and then they go into bonds, lower Absolutely, yeah. more consistent. So it, it sounds like something that, that as you get older and and less risk tolerant and more in wealth preservation mode versus mm-hmm. trying to grow, that's something that might be a better fit. Yeah, 100%. And because we're playing in this sub-investment grade that I talked about, historically, we've achieved high teens in terms of our, our annualized returns to investors. I mean, it's been really solid, you know, beating, you know, quite a lot of other asset types, in my opinion. But it comes down to... Um, Actually, I, I read an interesting article. I'm going to deviate slightly here. Sure. And it was making the case that single tenant net lease sale leasebacks are the new bond investments of our era. And hear me out why, right? Like 20 years ago, that 30 was years ago. I just made. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because before you used to, especially when interest rates were higher, right? You used to be able to, I mean, really buy a bond with a fairly fixed yield. It was typically on an annualized basis, you know, between six, seven, eight, sometimes even 10%. And it was essentially fixed to the the credit risk of the company it was tied to. And you had a high degree of certainty with it, right? But as interest rates have compressed to near zero, bond returns have, have done the same. And frankly, right now, they're not a very competitive investment category. Sure. And these these allow you to still hit those those yields, especially year to year, now it's tied to a lease instead of the actual directly to the company credit. But the risk of that lease is still tied to the same core function there. So, you know, I think from that perspective, this is a way to still get yield tied to the credit of, you know, frankly, a a strong company if you do your homework, right? Awesome. So what's next for you? Do y'all have any plans in in diversifying out or any other business asset classes y'all are entertaining? I mean, we really, niche is rich, right? And we found this single tenant net lease, sale leaseback model, we do well. And there's, it's a skill set that I think not a lot of people have just because it's a smaller addressable market than, you know, larger, say, multifamily as a whole. So we'll probably stay in this field. What we have seen some opportunity for, which has been kind of fun, is especially if we're buying real estate from a manufacturing firm that's recently been acquired by private equity, if they do their job right, and we've seen this successfully several times over the last couple of years, if they do it right, their business can substantially grow, sometimes double, you know, triple even over, you know, a relatively small amount of time. 
And we've had clients come to us, tenants come to us and go, hey, we need to expand, right? We love this site. We have land. And we say, hey, you know what? We have space here. We can expand your facility by another 60,000 square feet. We have a facilities manager and a GC on staff. So we will actually directly oversee the expansion. We'll get debt often from the same lender that you know lent to us on the core real estate. They are, are even more bullish about the project now because the, the company has right. theoretically increased right. and, and strengthened sure. in size. And now we're able to really turn what originally is kind of a stabilized deal into a value add. It ends up being really great for investors, really great for the tenant. And uh, you know they're more happy with the new space at the end. And we'll actually, we'll pre-negotiate before the, the add-on starts to say, hey, when this is done, here's the new rent rate across the board. You know, you have far more square footage. And once we hand over the keys from the expansion, now your cash flow has increased substantially higher. And yeah, it's a, it's a great way to kind of turn one of these, you know, more steady eddy deals into a nice value add pop. Awesome. Well, how would you direct somebody who wanted to learn more about this niche? Yeah. Education first, always. We have some stuff on our, our website is uh, magcp.com. I'm happy to, to talk both from an educational side and obviously from an, an investor connection side. And you can reach out with any questions or, or even comments on the, on the podcast. My direct email is neil, N-E-I-L at magcp.com. Also, there's, there's several big REITs that have some pretty good education out there. Store Capital is a good one. S-T-O-R-E, they're publicly traded. There's also Stream Capital Partners. Both of these are, are big single tenant net lease REIT players that have a lot of education on their websites as well. Awesome. So I want to hop over real quick to our radio round just to help our listeners get to know you a little bit better. First question we got is, what's your favorite book? Oh, man. I'm going to probably deviate. I don't know if I'm supposed to say a real estate book here, but... Um. <laughs> you know, I've, I've never specified and about 75% of the guests do use real estate books, but I've had some like, I've had some far off ones. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm in it all day long. I'm not going to lie. I, I like more recreational reading for myself. I've been reading a book called uh, Why We Sleep and I find it fascinating. I mean, and really just to tie it in, I mean your sleep wake cycles, your, your alert kind of down cycles. I mean, the better you understand those, the better you can, I mean, I found you can just optimize every minute of your day to know, Hey, like, I don't, I don't need to fight my circadian rhythm. I don't need to fight my, my body's natural flow. And if I can work around what I I realize already exists here, I can be way more productive. And anyway, it's been, been opening. I learned early in college that the whole, like, cramming all night, sacrificing sleep for productivity was a fool's errand. And I haven't tried to do it for a very long time. My wife jokes that when I don't get sleep, I'm like those Snickers commercial when like the actor turns into Joe Pesci or Betty White when they don't, when they don't, <laughs> when they're hungry. Oh it's yeah, man. You get a little hangry, I, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm, when I don't get, you know, eight hours or seven hours, I'm worthless. So much of your passions and your, you know, your day-to-day life is tied into how good that sleep is, right? Absolutely. So I'm going to have to check that one out. What is your favorite quote? My favorite quote, it does change, but right now I would say it's a, it's a Truman quote. There's no limit to what can be accomplished if it doesn't matter who gets the credit. That's an excellent one. Yeah. I learned that back in the Air Force Academy and it was one of our, our required reading, uh, you know, quotes in our little pamphlet book, you know, all these kind of key quotes. And honestly, like 
the older I get, you know, the more I, I just work with teams and, you know, kind of find mutual success. It's, it's fascinating how true that is that, you know, just pay it forward, you know, and take care of your people. And, and it always comes around indirectly. So. Yeah. Having spent so many years in corporate America, I think they should have that quote on the wall of every single <laughs> right? <laughs> For MBAs, oh man, yeah. I, I went through, uh, you know, an MBA program at Texas A&M and, you know, I love the program, love the people, but I swear to you that it seems to attract folks that are just like <laughs> succeed for myself, no matter the cost. And, you know, I think this would be a great, like start and finish the day quote for these guys. <laughs> yeah, for sure. What's your favorite thing to do outside of work? You know, I love flying. It's my just your pilot, my guilty pleasure. Yeah. I mean, you know, I did it for 10 years with the air force and uh, I'm in a flying club out here in the, in the city in San so Francisco. Where do you fly? You know, just a little four-seaters, the flying club. I got a little Cessna 172 and, you know, I'll take up friends and family and investors sometimes. We'll putter by the Golden Gate Bridge and go buzz downtown and Alcatraz and go out to Napa, grab some wine and some food. Oh, I'm not drinking wine if I'm flying. (laughs) (laughs) Real smooth landings there, right? But yeah, it's it's been great kind of mixing that with my professional endeavors. You don't have any fear about flying? I always wondered why so many more like non-commercial airlines crashed than commercial airlines. Yeah. I mean, no, no real, no real fear. I I probably should be (laughs) a little more concerned sometimes, especially, you know, traveling to far corners of the world, you know, it all comes down to training, right? The U S military does a, just a bang up job and, you know, training their pilots years and years and thousands of hours, but yeah, you know, it just comes down to having, having good habit patterns, having good discipline, you know, checklists, standardization, and not deviating from what you know works. And if you stay in that, you'll, you'll fly safe and every time. Awesome. Awesome. That sounds, sounds exciting. I'm working up the courage. Yeah. Uh, What about you? Outside of work, I I have a 18 month old and I'm having another baby on Monday. Congratulations. you know, I like to do a lot of outdoor sports and, and barbecue, but these days outside of work, life pretty much revolves around. <laughs> totally get that. Totally. So I feel like I kind of jumped the gun earlier on this question, but I did want to give you an opportunity to put any more of your contact information out there. How can people get, get in touch with you, get a hold of you, learn more about Mag Capital? And Yeah, absolutely. Um, so again, I'll just put out the email there is the best. Any comments, questions, any inquiries about the the investment process, or if you're interested in joining the group, you can just reach out, Neil, N-E-I-L, at magcp.com. Neil at magcp.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Neil. You were a most interesting guest we've had in a while on a very uh, different topic that we haven't had a chance to cover. So really excited that we were able to uh, get this information out to our listeners. And and I was personally very, very intrigued by the topic and, and look forward to kind of learning some more about it. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for having me on, Sterling. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to the Rent Roll Radio Show brought to you by Crestworth Capital. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a rating and review. You can also visit us at CrestworthCapital.com or RentRollRadio.com or follow us on Facebook at Rent Roll Radio or at Crestworth Capital. 
If you would like to reach us, feel free to shoot us an email at info at rentrollradio.com or sterling at crestworthcapital.com. We hope you come back next week to join us on some more of our journey. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.